Hello and welcome to Farmerama. Here in the Northern Hemisphere, we've just passed the summer solstice, and around us things are in full bloom and beginning to share their fruits. But the past few months have been challenging for many, as the COVID crisis continues, and as the Black Lives Matter movement highlights the many manifestations of systemic racial injustice in the world. This month, we're back to our regular format, and we're bringing you a mix of voices from the regenerative farming movement. We start with an inspirational farmer who is part of a group of people building a more resilient local textile economy through Fibershed UK. We then hear about a project reintroducing a one-time staple crop, chestnuts, into the southern United States. We learn how the Edible Classroom is bringing regenerative agriculture into schools, cafeterias, and community kitchens. And we finish in Wales with a poem that speaks to the heart of rewilding. Gala Bailey Barker is a first-generation farmer at Plaw Hatch Farm, a mixed 500-acre biodynamic community-owned farm. In her eight years there, Gala has been involved with most aspects of the farm, but her focus is on her sheep. She's increased the flock from 30 to 90 and has developed a wool enterprise. Gala and others, including her mother, natural dyer Deborah Barker, are establishing Fibershed UK. Fibershed is about bringing together all the people involved in a garment's life cycle, from farmers to dyers to designers. As we mentioned back in episode 53, we're supporting the Fibershed UK team to get going. So late last summer, we worked with fashion journalist Sarah Mower to bring young designers from London on a visit to Plaw Hatch Farm. It was a brilliant day of sheep herding, dyeing wool, rethinking textile supply networks, and we all got to learn about biodynamic growing. Yeah, so I, I guess I've been developing a bit of a wool enterprise with the flock I look after for the whole time that I've been in Hatch. But it's actually very difficult to get wool processed organically, natural fibre company, the only company that do it. And it's been quite difficult trying to coordinate when shearing's happening and when the wool can be processed. And I often don't know when the next processing's happening. So that's all been quite challenging. I think probably when mum came to me and said oh, this this thing called fiber shed it's quite exciting idea to create localized fiber systems in the way that we are creating or have created local food systems i think it's a really exciting thing as well as to bring people together who are trying to do this i feel like there's a lot of people who have been really interested in creating better fabrics or using having more regenerative wool and getting good quality things that are made locally but everyone's felt a bit on their own and not really known who to talk to at the moment i our idea with the southeast england fiber shed is to create a directory so that people know who to talk to basically we can save each other so much time if we know who to talk to you know you can often have a problem and you keep thinking oh i just don't know who to ask and actually to have a a network and get designers who want to find good wool and farmers who want to provide good wool together is um, a really exciting thing. They came down and um, they brought Patrick McDowell and a few other really great young designers 
and they're they're becoming so disillusioned with it. I mean, you know, all of them are saying, like, you know, they've done internships with big companies and they're just horrified by the waste and the kinds of materials that are getting used and wanting something different, but maybe also not knowing where to look for it. And I think it's just amazing for them to actually come to a farm and see how the decisions they're making about what materials they're using can actually impact the land and can impact the animal's welfare. It is possible to produce wool potentially that's carbon neutral. It can actually improve the land, not just kind of be all right or, you know, a bit good for it. It can actually, yeah, be a helpful way to improve the land and another way to support farmers, I suppose. Because it is so dire, the situation with wool at the moment. I mean, we don't sell wool to the wool board, but if we did, it probably wouldn't even cover the cost of us having the animal sheared. And we have the animal sheared because they need to be, but that's also been a bit of a strange thing that people are kind of against sharing in the fashion industry, which is very strange because, as we all know, you have to share sheep. It's necessary. <laughs> It's a very big commitment to have wool spun. It's a very expensive thing to do. And I think that's one of the big things about getting designers involved early on in the process is actually you need them to come. They need to be in there right at the beginning to say, actually, this is what I want. Because otherwise you're laying out, like, I'm lucky I'm part of this big mix farm. There's all these different enterprises. So there is always money that I could invest in having the wool processed. But if you're just a shepherd I think it must be really challenging to you're making a sort of leap of faith in spending all this money on having a wool processed and being unsure about if you can actually sell it and I think that's partly what this fibre shed idea is about and about getting the designers involved is you know you if someone can come to you and say I really would love to have you know this speck of wool and it have this staple length it needs to be this particular colour and then even if they can't put the money in up front, at least you know that <laughs> you can sell it. Whereas getting, you know, a load of knitting all done and also having an outlet, it's, it is another, it's another thing to do, really. And it's not directly to do with looking after sheep. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because the, so the serial series that's just been done on Farmerama, that was really fascinating about serials, but I thought so much of it applies to wool. There is just this, this lack of processes, you know, that's really, really essential that we have processes, people who actually are milling wool, not just milling wheat. And, um, yeah, I think that we've lost so much of that. But it's amazing that it's coming back, and I think it's great just having all these... We had a little meeting last night with the Southwest Fibre Shed, and I was there, and a few other people came who were shepherds or interested in it. And, yeah, it's just great to have uh, those conversations and and make those connections and yeah it feels like it's gonna take off yeah i guess with the sheep enterprise the by processing wool and sheepskins i sort of add a third onto my turnover that is a and i think my idea with sheep it's actually it can be better to have less sheep and get more value from each sheep than to have just lots of sheep and having less sheep maybe allows you that time to go to the abattoir and get the sheepskins and salt them and send them off and sell them. And that actually is a big added income. For me, I really want to use every bit of our sheep. I feel like that's kind of our responsibility as 
people that are raising animals for meat, that actually there shouldn't be any waste. And we're very lucky because we have two local abattoirs. Our sheep always go through the same one. And it is an hour round trip for me to go and get the sheepskin. So I take the sheep in the morning and I go back at lunchtime and get them and bring them home and salt them and then post them off to the Welsh Organic Tannery. But we, we can make enough of a margin on them that it's worthwhile to do that. And we also have our own butchery, so the animals will come back to the butchery. And I think um, Jane once took a picture of me, for me of the waste. And I mean, it's not even waste because you give us the dog, but it's like just a handful of meat because we sell all the bones and all of the meat and even do stuff with any excess fat from the use. That's the advantage of having small farms and having internal production, because we've got the dairy and the butchery, is that actually the waste is very little. Renan Sokolov is the Vegetable and Agroforestry Manager at Caney Fork Farms in Carthage, Tennessee. It's a 400-acre organic, 100% grass-fed, mixed farm, owned by environmentalist and former U.S. Vice President Al Gore. Last year, the farm hosted the Climate Underground, a conference that brought together farmers, scientists, investors, community organizers, activists, and chefs to explore what it takes to raise food, sink carbon, and work towards healthier communities. One of the experiments taking place on the farm involves planting many different varieties of chestnut trees. The goal is to see which varieties might thrive best in the area's climate. It seems to be one of those moments where the, the whole regenerative agricultural world has started to coalesce around chestnuts as a crop right now. So our oldest trees are three years old that we've planted here on the property. And we just planted another about 1,500 trees this year. From both from a carbon standpoint, um, switching away from annual grain production to a staple crop that has deep roots, um, you're not tilling the soil. We're bringing in a lot of acreage that isn't suitable for tillage in the first place and can't grow annuals and trying to switch our eating habits and staple crops to a perennial agricultural system as much as possible. The reason why chestnuts are not already part of our main diet is in the U.S. they were really decimated by a blight that came through in started in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and really by the mid-1920s had decimated the majority of the chestnut trees on the eastern seaboard. Uh, they used to be extremely prevalent. About one in every four trees was a chestnut in our area. It was they were just down the road from a town called Chestnut Mound to show just how sort of ingrained this tree was in, in everyday life. And going back, there's records of indigenous peoples uh, really turning to the chestnut as a main staple food crop, uh, as well as all sorts of wildlife that really lived off of this. So the fact it was kind of a double whammy when the chestnut left, it was, it was very difficult for people. And then, of course, the Great Depression came in the end of the 1920s. And at that same time that this wild food source disappeared from the landscape, the national economy really collapsed and people were not able to get food and really exacerbated a lot of the hunger that was experienced in some areas. 
the all the chestnuts that we have are either of pure Chinese genetics, and the Chinese trees have some genetic traits that enable them to be to not be susceptible to the blight, so they're able to survive. Some are pure, um, purely Chinese varieties. Some have been crossed with American varieties. Uh, there's on the property we have about 17 to 20 different varieties that have been planted. Um, however, their chestnuts are not particularly true to type. So while they are, we know the families from which they came from, but they might not be exactly, these aren't grafted trees. It's not like an apple where every golden delicious is actually a clone of itself. Uh, there are grafted chestnuts out there, but we really want it because we're trying to reintroduce this crop in this region and in the country. Uh, we felt it important to plant trees from seedlings to really allow these trees to express all their genetic potential, uh, especially bringing them back into this region where there aren't too many chestnut growers. We really want to be able to identify all the different types of trees that we could have and really potentially start breeding our own trees that will produce as much as possible here. We're just at this point where the last generation that had any experience with chestnuts is reaching older age. And at farmer's markets we've been selling, we've been having some customers who come up who are in their 80s or 90s and they are just like filled with joy because they haven't seen chestnuts since they were little kids. And they remember the stories that their parents and their grandparents used to tell them about going out and collecting nuts and roasting them over an open fire. And their grandchildren are with them and have honestly never heard of a chestnut before. They've never eaten one. They've never had one before. So it's this, it's kind of amazing to see, to bring back this thing that came from a certain generation's childhood that went missing and we're bringing it back just in time for some people to witness their grandchildren rediscover this. And it's kind of a really beautiful moment to be bringing the chestnut back. In terms of the large scaling possibility of chestnuts, we, you can produce about 2 million to 2.5 million calories per acre, uh, which, so for reference, wheat produces about 4 million calories per acre. Uh, so we're not talking on a one-to-one -one replacement level of chestnuts to wheat, for um, for instance, but we're also grazing our, our sheep through them. So we have a silvopastoral system that is really beneficial for the, the sheep. Uh, because of USDA regulations, we can't graze them in the chestnut fields for 120 days before nutfall, but we're able to actually hay those fields during the summer and feed that hay back on that same land to the sheep during early spring, late, fall and during the winter and we're seeing really great results building um building the soil organic matter in those fields and the sheep chestnuts are sensitive to compaction so we're we're hesitant to bring the cattle in the trees are also aren't large enough yet to handle a cow that can come in and just chomp it down but the sheep have been great and even after three years we don't have to uh, fence off the chestnut trees anymore from the sheep so we're we've getting the added calories and the meat that we're able to harvest off of the the sheep which is bringing that number up a decent amount and then also just thinking about the the uh inputs that go into growing chestnuts versus growing wheat we're not tilling every year even in a no-till system it is Depending on what researchers you're talking to, at the bare minimum, it's very difficult to build organic matter uh, if you're growing wheat, even in a great complex rotation. Planting trees is, it's a totally different timescale. I uh, have primarily worked with vegetables up until the past couple of years, and I, I'm still working with vegetables now, and I feel it's nice to go between them uh, because the, the vegetables, everything, everything is so urgent. 
it's often very important as well, but it's very urgent, has to happen right then. There's very little room for error. And then with the trees, everything's important, but it's often not as urgent. And thinking about these chestnuts, they don't, they'll start producing hopefully within five to seven years, but don't reach full maturity of production until about 25 years. And we'll start, uh, we'll have a lifespan of 60 years. So thinking about being in my 50s when these are actually hitting peak production is just a wild thought to me. <laughs> or, and uh, I, but it's growing up just hearing so many stories about, um, I mean, biblical stories and fables. And I feel like every single culture has these stories of a child or a middle-aged person walking up to someone who is in their 70s and 80s who's planting a tree and asking, why, why are you planting this tree? There's no, there's not any possibility that you will ever gain any benefit from this tree. You'll probably be gone before you can even sit in its shade and really looking at it from a generational aspect and saying, this is not even for my children at this point, this is for my grandchildren. And it's really that mentality that has gotten us into our agricultural predicaments that we're in right now, where it's just been about short-term production and often at the, at the expense of future generations. Convincing someone to take on such a long-term project is difficult. Most farmers do not have a ton of money to play with, and most farmers would love to say, yeah, I'm gonna be planting something that's gonna be at its peak bearing age for my grandchildren, but that means you have to spend the money right now, and you're not getting any of that return until later on. And that's a really, it's a privileged position to be in, to be able to make that decision and to have that, um, to be able to act on that foresight. There are plenty of people who have that foresight who are just not in a position to act on it and hopefully uh, people who are able to act on that foresight now are able to not just have that be something that they do but push for policy changes push for um, investors push for all sorts of different people who can help farmers who really want to be thinking about this and if people aren't eating tons of chestnuts it might not be chestnuts it might be hazelnuts or any other sort of perennial agriculture but if we're not if this isn't a key part of our diet in 20 30 years then i think we're going to be in a lot of trouble angela mckee brown is deputy executive director of the edible schoolyard project an initiative founded by the celebrated chef alice waters Angela designs and facilitates hands-on educational experiences in gardens, kitchens and cafeterias that connect children to nature, food and to each other. Why do I care about this work? So first and foremost, I believe that when our children eat, they become powerful and they become extremely uh, wonderful advocates um, for what their needs are, but also needs of their community. And so when our children come to the garden or to the kitchen classroom, they're building relationships with food and healthy relationships with food and an understanding of food. So not only where food comes from, but what it means for themselves, what it means for their communities, what it means for the environment and the world that surrounds them. And then when we think about the cafeteria, the cafeteria is a phenomenal opportunity that exists in pretty much all of our communities here in the United States. Um, and it provides an opportunity for continued growth where we can provide our children a meal experience that also connects them to each other, to where food comes from, to the environment that exists around them, to other cultures, to build deep understandings of each other, of themselves, and also a sense of belongingness to their school community, which then also connects them to their greater community. We're partnering with the community of Stockton, California to reimagine their school meal experience. 
So this partnership came about because our founder, Alice Waters, was sitting next to the mayor of Stockton, Mayor Michael Tubbs. He's a phenomenal guy um, and a funder. And Alice was doing what she does best, which is feeding the idea, um, feeding a concept to a group of people. And so that day she was feeding school lunch. And Mayor Tubbs tried the meal and he said he wanted this for all of his kids in Stockton. And so from that, we received grant funding to partner with the community of Stockton to reimagine the food experiences on campus in the south side of Stockton. So when we think about the south side of Stockton, it has about 13 schools, K through 8 and high schools, as well as, I think, two grocery stores, but they're on opposite ends of the region. And the mindset is, is that surrounding Stockton is a rich agricultural area. So it's in the Central Valley region where so much food for the United States and the world has grown. But so much of that food leaves Stockton and it never makes it back into the community or into the schools. So we're partnering with the community to think about how we can get that food that's grown by organic, regenerative farms into the schools. The mindset is is that we have this opportunity to imagine together and to design a program where we not only procure food from local and regional farms who are taking care of their workers and taking care of the land, but we also have an opportunity to think about how we leverage the cafeteria as a place for learning. So imagine if you walked into your cafeteria and it was an experience that taught you about nourishment, about stewardship of the land. You know, what if you followed the pathway of a seed on the ground as you went to get your lunch? And what if it also just served as a place to build community? And so that's what we're working with the community of Stockton to think about. And we're working with them. We're not just doing it for them and because the best ideas exist there. And so we want to make sure that all the funding that we have is leveraged by the community of Stockton. In terms of where we're at with the project in Stockton, California, uh, we've been hosting a series of community dinners um, so we can all gather around a meal, eat an organic, locally sourced meal, and talk about what the community wants and needs from not only a school lunch program, but from a school food experience. So we've hosted uh, two dinners so far. We've been attending a lot of events, a lot of church gatherings, a lot of 5K runs. And each time we go, we bring food um, from a local farm so that way we can tell the story of that food and where the food comes from. One of my favorite stories right now is um, of a young man named Caleb. Um, At our last community dinner, which we host at community centers um, that are located in the neighborhoods which we're meant to serve. And um, Caleb, he got there early and he was playing basketball with one of his friends who had come to the first community dinner. And um, Caleb did not like to smile. He didn't want to engage very much with me. And, you know, I was trying to tell jokes. I was trying to talk to him about basketball and he had nothing to do with me. And so I just paused and I realized we had grapes. Um, a local organic farmer from Logier Ranches had just dropped off a harvest of Bronx grapes. These grapes are just phenomenal in terms of flavor and taste and texture. And she just dropped them off. And so I knew I had them in the kitchen. And I just I went up to him and I was like, do you want to try the best grape of your life? And he was like, mm, I don't know. Sure, I'll do it. So I ran to the kitchen because I knew I only had a few moments before he like left. And I came back uh, with a little handful of grapes. And so I held out the grapes and he picked one off and put it in his mouth and began to taste it. And as he began to taste it, he began to smile. But it wasn't just like a sly smile. It was a joyful smile. And in that moment, I knew that not only had we provided him with a wonderful experience, a beautiful experience, but we had also provided him with an opportunity to taste a flavor he had never tried before.
an opportunity to develop a positive food memory. So a moment that he's going to look back on, a moment that he's going to be able to use to define future moments in terms of his choices that he makes around food, um, in terms of the taste that he's willing to go and try and explore. And so in that moment, it was a resounding affirmation that this work is valuable, it's needed, and a resource exists all around of our communities. And that resource is food, and food that's grown well and grown with care and grown in soil that is well taken care of. And so I have extreme gratitude to the farmers because we're getting to talk to so many farmers. There's actually 94 organic farms that surround the community of Stockton. Um, and we actually learned that information through our partnership with Community Alliance with Family Farmers and CCOF, uh, which is an organic certification program in California. And so I can see all the dots of this new system. And our work is just meant to connect those dots to create a new system and one that's meaningful for our children, meaningful for our communities and meaningful for our farmers. There's not a single farmer that I've spoken with who doesn't want to feed kids and doesn't want to see their product or what they're growing or what they're producing in their fields or on their ranches feed our children. And that is a profound responsibility. And one thing I'm learning about farmers is that they are people who do their work with dignity and with respect. And so as I talk to these farmers, it seems like a natural fit. It seems like the perfect resource, the perfect way to um, leverage all this beautiful food that they're growing. Why not feed our children? Why not give it to our schools? And so I have a lot of excitement about that and about how we can leverage school food procurement dollars towards that. It's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take policy. It's going to take community members. It's going to take institutions. But there are models out there that have shown us that this is possible, um, that we can be inspired by. There's the Copenhagen model. Uh, Copenhagen is actually a city that's not much bigger than Stockton. So let's be inspired and let's try because we have to try. The only way to do it is to do it. I think if I had a message to share with the young farmers and with the new farmers, one is thank you. We couldn't be alive without you, so thank you for what you're doing. Please keep doing it. And we want you to be an integral and known part of our community. So let's work and find ways to connect you more deeply in. So that way, when you go down the street, we know who you are, so we can say thank you, because you're vital. Sam Shepherd-Robinson is another first-generation farmer now based in Machenclef, in Powerth, Wales. The 27-year-old moved from Oxford to the Welsh countryside, where he joined a rugby team became a member of a Welsh choir, got a job at a livestock farm and became fluent in Welsh, all in the space of 18 months. He reads a poem called Untamed by Megan Elenet Lewis, which captures the feelings of some Welsh farmers and explains why they've come to be rewilding as a threat to their way of life. I'll blant i dolly. Ar fridd, gwelaf fydd. Fynad a'i dad yn tai yn gwella'r tir yn nerthu'r nodd cyn ei roi yn ei dro, yn rhoedd i rai fel ni. A be nawn ar y mynydd wedyn, trwy'r hen gartre'n ffyrddyn, dadwysgo'r maith, dadweifio'r pridd. That Davile known Hain Hannes. That named. That Thusky. It raises fear 
the talk that's spreading about revamping, reshaping, rewilding the hills, replanting the meadows. On the freeth, I see faith, my father and his father improving the land, strengthening the sap before giving it in turn as a gift for those like us. And what will we do with the mountain then? Turn the old home into a ruin, undress the fertility, unroot the soil, unravel an old, old story, undo, unlearn, untame. Uh, so that was a poem called Dadzovi by Megan Ned Lewis. Uh, Dadzovi means untame. Hearing this poem reminded us of Rhys Roberts and Martin Peck, two upland sheep farmers also based in Powys, who shared their perspectives on rewilding and beauty in episode 22. It's one of my favorite interviews and well worth another listen. The voices of Welsh farmers, whose lives and livelihoods are rooted in these landscapes, are so often missing from rewilding discussions. We mustn't forget the rich knowledge they have built up about the land. This episode of Farmerama was made by me, Joe Barrett, Katie Revel, and Abby Rose. We're extremely grateful to our Patreon supporters who help us make the show. Thanks to James Fryer and Cathy St. Germans for recording interviews featured in this episode. Community support for Farmerama is provided by Hannah Sutherland, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Olivia Oldham. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. <laughs>